Welcome. This is the Living Rightly Podcast with Elaine Cross, and this is week five of our 40-day journey. We've been discussing this journey to develop your relationship with God, but what we haven't discussed is religion. Religion is both beneficial and can be detrimental when it comes to developing your relationship with God. Today, we're going to look from God's perspective. Physically, you see that I am a woman, I have graying hair, I have very light, almost pale complexion. Those are my physical characteristics. In my soul, my mind, my will, my emotions, I'm an author, I'm a teacher, I'm a coach. My husband says you can know what someone values by the time they dedicate to it. Work is important and necessary, but if you're a workaholic, other valuable things may suffer like family or even exercise. That's your soul. Spiritually, you might call me a Christian. I personally avoid calling myself a Christian because society has some definitions and assumptions associated with that word. I'm a child of God, a follower of Jesus, and a light dispelling darkness. As my body needs nourishment and rest, I'm mindful to care for it with fresh, balanced meals, exercise, rest. Furthermore, my soul needs cared for by avoiding detrimental things and giving it beneficial things. Controlling what I listen to, what I see, try to focus on things that are uplifting and intentional. Spiritual health is a little different, right? We can see our body, we can feel our emotions, but our spiritual health is based on our relationship with God. Now, it's as important as physical and soul health, but it's not as easily tracked or monitored. Consider three links in a chain. On one hand, you have your physical body. On the other hand, you have your spiritual self. In the middle is your soul, linking the two. And because your soul is equally close to your body and your spirit, it can reveal both your physical and spiritual health. Do you get hungry or hangry, hungry, angry mixed together because you haven't eaten? Well, similar reactions happen to you when you're tired, right? You get overly tired, you get irritable, cranky. That's your body engaging your soul to force you to do something for your body. Your body's saying, I need food. I need rest. Give it to me. So your body engages your soul to motivate you to make it well known that your body needs something. Similarly, your spirit can engage the soul to reveal your spiritual health. A healthy spirit's at peace, has lots of patience. But when it's distressed, your soul will express anxiety or depression or irritability. Defining your spiritual health is tricky. You can't see it or feel it like your body. It's not your church denomination. It's not how much you attend church or the hours that you spend volunteering or serving other people. Though these are things I recommend, your spirit needs a relationship with God. Just like your body needs food and rest, your spirit was created to be in relationship with God. Without Jesus, you did things that made you feel good about yourself. Now that you believe in Jesus, some of those things that used to make you feel good, don't. Because while Snickers bar may hold you over, what your body really needs is a meal. Similarly, the spiritual benefits from healthy interpersonal relationships but its meal is a relationship with God. Your spiritual health is indicated by your spiritual paradigm. What's a paradigm? 
paradigm is your thoughts and assumptions about a specific subject. Your spiritual paradigm is how you think about where you fit into God's kingdom and how you fit into God's kingdom. So we're going to take this from God's perspective. So let's start all the way back at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told by God to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Eat every plant that you want except that tree's fruit. They were naked. They were not afraid until they ate that fruit. And then they tried to fool God. Suddenly they knew they were naked. They were afraid. They wanted to hide because their souls were activated with fear, awareness of their nakedness, and a desire to hide from God, hide what they had done. Their conscience was activated, separating their spirit from God's spirit. God finds them in the garden and they play the blame game. Oh, she did it. Oh, he did it. God says, you don't understand. The paradigm is now shifted and you need my help to correct it. So God addressed them each one personally, kind of establishing personal responsibility and personal accountability. Then God killed an animal. He shed innocent blood to make clothes for Adam and Eve. Now it's clothes for Adam and clothes for Eve, indicating their differences and indicating that they're each responsible for the blood, the lifeblood that was required to cover that gap between God's spirit and their spirit. We're just not capable of fixing this ourselves. This is the first arrow pointing toward Jesus and his shed blood all the way back with Adam and Eve. It's the first indication that God has a plan. Well, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. They're two sons. Cain throws together an offering of grain, and Abel brings the firstborn from his flock and the fat portions. God respects and looks at Abel's offering, but not at Cain's. Cain is jealous and angry. And the Lord goes to Cain and tells him, hey, sin is waiting at your door. If you do things properly, you'll be happy. It'll go well. But if not, sin will rule over you. Cain's soul, his thoughts, his desires, his emotions were screaming at him that his spirit was going off kilter. God warned him, correct your course. Turn back toward God. He didn't. Cain killed Abel. Now, Abel looked to God in reverence and love and for relationship. He was thoughtful, bringing the best of his flock, putting pleasing God first. This is what I call a relational paradigm. Cain threw together an offering to get God's attention. It was almost a ploy, completing a duty for approval. Look at me, kind of offering, what I call an attention paradigm where Abel was other-focused, not concerned about personal loss, but giving out of love, his relational paradigm, Cain was task-oriented, almost compulsory, not seeking a relationship, but to be recognized for his actions, attention, paradigm. These are the two paradigms. Cain fueled his frustration, his resentment, his jealousy, and he embraced his self-focused, self-driven, self-defined paradigm. Cain was basically saying, do you see me now? Watch me do it my way. Kind of like that old Frank Sinatra song. 
I did it my way. Whatever. I'm not singing. <laughs> Cain was determined to direct his own life. God's response was, well, we no longer have a relationship. And my earth will no longer yield to you. You will be a wanderer. And that seems to hold true. The consequences of a self-directed attention-seeking life is a wandering spirit always searching for what is missing, that next big thing, that next great opportunity. But they always seem to fall short. It's because the missing piece is a relationship with God, a relational paradigm. When these paradigms appear with Noah, God established his first covenant with Noah, telling Noah and his sons, Noah's wife and his son's wives, to enter the ark. Now, the order that God lists this is really important. Then there's rain, there's a flood, there's dry land, and God tells them to disembark. But when God tells them to disembark, it's Noah and his wife, Noah's sons and his son's wives. So they entered as two groups, male and female, kind of separate. But they disembark as couples, Noah and his wife, his sons and his son's wives. You could say Shem and his wife and Ham and his wife and Japheth and his wife. So after completing this mission that God put him on, Noah offered a burnt offering. And God blessed Noah and his son saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, just like Adam and Eve. But there was a difference. God says, now you can eat anything you want, just not the blood. So God clarified, you have to cook the meat. And anyone who sheds a person's blood, it will be required of him. Basically, God's instituting the death penalty. Blood is very important. This reiterates the importance of the lifeblood. Another arrow pointing toward Jesus who sheds his blood to cover our sins. God blesses Noah and his seed or descendants. So there's no question, we are descendants of Noah. But after the flood, that attention paradigm still survives because the story is interrupted with an evening of significant consequences. Noah plants a garden. He gets drunk. He falls asleep, naked. Well, the last time we heard about any naked people was Adam and Eve, when they were completely exposed, hiding nothing, and in perfect relationship with God. It's almost how God is trying to show us where Noah is. Noah and him are in perfect relationship. Noah's not hiding anything. God knows he got drunk. It's okay. But Ham, Noah's middle son, saw his nakedness and did something nefarious. Now, we know this because though God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply, he never had other children. Once Ham had completed his deed, whatever it was that prevented Noah from having children, he went to find his brothers and brag about it. Ha ha ha, come look at dad, see what I did. Now Shem and Japheth carefully, respectfully covered Noah without looking at his nakedness. Subsequently, Ham and his son Canaan were cursed because of what Ham had done. Ham's actions were self-serving, self-focused, and self-driven. His thinking that his father will have other sons would dilute his portion. So he made sure his father didn't have any more sons. Do you hear a spirit of lack there? Like there won't be enough. I have one third of the earth and that's just not enough for me. I don't want to have any less than that. I might have with one fourth or one fifth of the earth. Come on. <laughs> And consequently, his son, Canaan, is cursed. 
Again, I think pointing to the fact that Noah could have no more sons. Ham's actions reflect that attention paradigm of his spirit. Proud, fear of lack, seeking the approval of men, so on and so forth. Alternatively, Noah's other sons acted out of concern for their father and their relationship with him and their relationship with God. They heard Ham, but they chose to honor their father and protect him. As a result, Shem was blessed and Japheth is enlarged because of their relational paradigm. I know there's a lot of Bible history here, but we have one last patriarch to examine. When Noah is introduced in the Bible, we learn of his three sons, which is unique in that we only usually hear of the oldest son. Adam beget Seth, Seth beget so-and-so, so-and-so beget so-and-so, just down the line. We get to Noah and we hear about his three sons. Well, the next time we see that is Terah. Terah is listed with his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran's sons, Lot. Now, unlike Noah, Terah is simply the patriarch, and Abram, the son, is the focus of God's attention. Scripture is signaling to us that family relationship is important. Where Noah had his sons, Abraham has his father, his brother, his nephew, and nieces. These relationships are clarified in a 79-word synopsis of Haran's life. God just narrowed his life down to this small little paragraph, and we're told that Haran dies, and then Abram and Nahor get married. And then the Bible tells us that Nahor's wife is one of Haran's daughters, and Abram's wife is Sarai. Now, Sarai means princess, leaving us wonder if it was her name or just a term of endearment. Who is this Sarai? Some speculate she is Haran's other daughter, Ishka. But Sarah is only 10 years younger than Abram. So she wasn't Haran's daughter. She'd be too old for that. I suspect she was one of Haran's wives. Now God tells us Sarai is barren. But does Abram know? If he knows she's barren and takes her as a wife, it is a significant act of honor for his brother because she's barren. She's beautiful, but she's barren. We know Abram has a relational paradigm. Now, Abram becomes Abraham, who is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other patriarch. Writers address Jews as sons and daughters of Abraham, and God is often referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, Scripture clarifies that a child of Abraham is not by Abraham's blood, but by his faithfulness having a relational paradigm. So you see these two paradigms, an attention paradigm and a relational paradigm. Luke actually warns the Israelites saying, you say you have Abraham as your father, but I say God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. Paul tells the Galatians, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant. Heirs according to promise. So, what is the promise and the benefit of being a child of Abraham? Let's look at it. After Terah dies, God tells Abraham, go from your country, your relatives, your father's house. God will make you a great nation. He'll bless you. He'll give you a great name. And you'll be a blessing. Additionally, God will bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. That's significant. Abraham becomes the standard of the new covenant because of these promises and this blessing. But why does he stand out? What has he done? 
He married Sarai. He goes with his father from Ur to Haran. And then God says, go and leave it all behind. And as soon as God says, go and leave it all behind, he gives him this blessing. It's like, doesn't sound like he did much, except apparently he has a family. He has parents, he has brothers, he has nieces and nephews. Maybe God is foretelling us all the significance of Abraham with what he does with the rest of his life. So let's look at the rest of his life. Abram allows his nephew Lot to come along. Well, that's blatant disobedience right off the rip. God said, leave everybody behind. What does God do? He appears to tell Abram that all the land he is in, Canaan, will be his descendants. Okay. Next, Abraham builds his first altar. And he wanders through the area a little bit and he gets to Bethel. He builds another altar. Signals his relationship, his connection to God. Then Abram wanders some more into a famine and he heads to Egypt. Now, Abram tells Sarai to tell Pharaoh she's his sister. Is he lying? Is she his sister-in-law? Basically, he tells her he doesn't trust God to protect his life because they'll take Sarai and kill him. So he puts Sarai in this dangerous situation because of his deception to protect his own life. And sure enough, the Egyptians take Sarai, give Abram some servants and livestock, basically paying him for her. And does God punish him for being so serving and deceptive? Does God reprimand him? No. God sends plagues on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has to call Abram out for it. (laughs) Pharaoh sends Abram and Sarah away with gifts and wealth. Okay. Maybe it's the next thing. So now Abram and Lot, are their herdsmen are quarreling. They are so wealthy, both of them, that Abram says, we can't live together. You choose whatever land you want and I'll go the other way. Now here, Abram appears to be trusting God in this. And God blesses Abram, telling him his descendants will be abundant like the dust. And they'll possess all the land he can see and walk north, south, east, and west. Okay, that's more blessing. Are you waiting for the other shoe to fall? What did Abram do that was so great? Maybe we'll get to it. Let's see. (laughs) Then we get this little, another little story, almost just to indicate how blessed Abram is. You know, you'll be blessed, you're wealthy. What does that mean? Okay. Apparently there's this huge war of five kings against four kings. And the five kings fall. Only... Lot and his family is taken along with all the spoils of that war. So in a display of Abram's wealth and honor, he calls up 318 trained men. This isn't just the the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, just some guys he, he calls up. These are trained men who were born in his house, and they successfully retrieve Lot. He has a standing army. That's how wealthy That's how blessed Abram is. Abram brings them all back. And here we hear of Melchizedek, a priest of the Lord God Most High. He blesses Abram and gives him a tenth of everything. This is the first tithe going to Abram. Now the king of Sodom wants to give Abram all the possessions, but Abram refuses. He's like, no, you'll say Sodom made me rich. No, God is my provider. So this reinforces that all the wealth of Abraham 
is because of God and his devotion to God. This seems to be a high point. God's using Abram to save these people. God's protecting him. God's bringing him. And then God's blessing him with 10% of a whole kingdom, right? And God sends Abram a vision. Don't fear, I am your shield. Abram pushes back. like, what will you give me since I'm childless? My heir is a slave, Eliezer. I have no son. That's some bold talking to God. But God doesn't flinch. He doesn't punish him. He tells Abram his descendants will come from his body. And then he takes him outside and says, count the stars. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord accredited to Abram as righteousness. Abram's belief is not really evident in his actions. In scripture, this is the first time we hear of Abram's righteousness. It's credited to him as righteous. So what's Abram do now? He pushes back again. (laughs) This does not sound like somebody that, I don't know, should be the symbol of Christian piety, Christian goodness, however you want to say it. So Abram pushes back against God and says, how will I know? God tells Abraham to prepare for a vision by a blood sacrifice of a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. This is a little gruesome. He has to cut large animals in half. And then he guards the slaughtered animals from the wild beasts until the dark falls and he falls into this terror-filled sleep. And God speaks to Abram about his descendants, that they'll be very numerous, but they'll be enslaved. And in 400 years, they're going to return and possess the land. And that day is when God made his covenant with Abram to give the descendants the land. And this is the first covenant, the first time we ever heard of a covenant between God and Abram. Now, when Abram left Haran, he was 75. At this point, he's 85 years old. Sarai is 75. And Sarai is like, take my slave Hagar to have your son. Now, this is a bad move. There's lots of drama. There's lots of jealousy. And God's response is, I'll greatly multiply Hagar's descendants. But no, that's not the one. So at 99, the Lord appears to Abram again to refine his covenant. He gives him a name change, gives him an opportunity to partner with God. Now, this is the full Abrahamic covenant. This is God's promises that Abram, which means exalted father, was now Abraham, a father of nations, with a multitude of descendants. Kings will come from him. And the land Abram claimed earlier is the land they will possess. But this covenant requires Abraham's commitment. And his commitment is that every male must be circumcised. This is a blood oath. And there's a part for Sarai. Sarai, which means princess, will now be called Sarah, which is noble woman. And she will birth nations and kings. Abram falls on his face, but inside he's laughing and questioning God. And we know this because it says so right in scripture. Inside, to himself, he's like, we're 90 and 100 years old. We're going to give birth to a child? (laughs) Laughing, thinking, this is ridiculous, God. But verbally, Abraham says, just bless Ishmael. Make Ishmael my heir. It'll be fine. He's a good lad. And God is so patient. He says, no, Sarah, at 90, Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. 
my covenant is with him and his descendants. But, you know, I'll bless Ishmael and he'll have 12 princes and a great nation. Now he's 99. So nine years later, Abram is 99 years old. Ishmael is 13 years old. And he and all the men in his house get circumcised. This is all relational. Every male, every slave or free, every male in his house, whether bought or born, is now unified in relationship to each other with this circumcision. This is a relational paradigm. So now God has given him this great covenant. He has accepted. He has done his part. He's he's offered the blood oath of the circumcision. How does Abraham behave now? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah have dropped to the lowest level of the attention paradigm. So God, described as three men, comes to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and visits Abraham, who is very hospitable to God. And God reiterates, Sarah will bear a son. And now she's laughing to herself. And God's like, is there anything too great for the Lord? This time next year, you will have a son. And the Lord looks out at Sodom and Abraham starts to negotiate. If there are 50 righteous, will you sweep them away with the wicked? God's like, no, I guess not. Abraham continues to push for answers from God. What about if there's 45? How about 40? Can you give me 30? How about 20? How about 20? How about 10? Will you give me 10? And finally, God's like, I'll give you 10. If there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city, but I got to go. <laughs> it's like, I've hit my limit. <laughs> now we hear all this and religion will tell you to fear the Lord. Don't talk to the Lord that way. Don't be completely honest. Guard your tongue, guard your attitude, guard how you speak to God. But Abraham has this relationship with God and is so comfortable with God, he pushes back and he pushes back, right? It's like, no, yeah, we're kind of old. Let's just let Ishmael be. Uh, Why don't you you save this city? Why would you destroy all these righteous people with these wicked people? You can't kill righteous people. That's not how God behaves, right? I mean, Abraham is really pushing back against God. That's not what you hear in religion. And the difference is Abraham has this relationship. He's comfortable being open and honest with him, kind of like being completely naked, but not afraid, in perfect relationship with God. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast and find value in what you hear, all I ask is you turn that value into a number and go to elainecross.com and make a donation. I freely provide my time, talent, and treasure to publish it, but I need your help to continue to provide this for you. I know people need to hear this, so I won't set up a paywall or subscription level. I refuse to be beholden to advertising corporations that control the content. You are who I want to serve. So help produce the next episode to spark the light in someone else to push back against the chaos of darkness, one person at a time. Go to ElaineCross.com, that's E-L-A-Y-N-E, cross, as in Jesus died on the cross, dot com, and make a donation. Then send a note to me at donation at elainecross.com. Let's continue. Next thing we hear, Abraham and Sarah journey south, business as usual. Apparently God's got this. He's not worried about Sarah getting pregnant or staying pregnant at 90. We're just going to keep wandering around because that's what we do. And apparently she is still smoking hot at 90 because Abraham has her tell Abimelech, the king of Gier, that she's his sister, not his wife. Now, does Abraham really trust God? Why is he trying this thing again? It ended badly last time. 
Well, I guess maybe it didn't end badly for Abraham. Well, it ends badly for King Abimelech again. (laughs) King Abimelech takes Sarah to be in his harem. And apparently Abraham doesn't worry about his wife. Does God warn him? Does God use harsh words? Does God punish Abraham? Does he tell him, hey, you should take better care of your wife? She's going to have your baby really soon and she's really old. No. What does God do? He closes all the wombs in Gair and goes to Abimelech in a dream. God tells Abimelech, you're a dead man because the woman you took, Sarah, is a married woman. And the king's like, why are you punishing me? I didn't touch her. And he said she was his sister. I have integrity. I'm innocent. And God says, I know. You're innocent. You have integrity. That's why I've kept you from sinning against me by not letting you touch her. But you need to return her or you will die and all that is yours. Now, that punishment is worse than Pharaoh's punishment. You know, they got sick. These guys are going to die. Additionally, Abraham's blessing is bigger this time. It's like he's as close or closer to God and God is blessing him even more. God tells Abimelech, Abraham's a prophet and he's going to pray for you and you will live. Apparently now Abraham's a prophet. So Abraham prays for Abimelech and God opens the wombs of all the women in the nation. But Abimelech confronts Abraham who says, I did it because there's no fear of God in this nation and you would kill me to get to her. Well, that was probably true. But what's the result? Abimelech gives Abraham sheep, oxen, servants, and then he gives Sarah a thousand pieces of silver for her vindication. This is blessing upon blessing. This isn't just feel good. This is wealth. This is, in today's terms, cold hard cash. God just continues to bless Abraham. And Abraham seems to be awfully flawed to be the highest example of piety in Scripture. Sarah did conceive. She gave birth to Isaac. Abraham circumcised him on the eighth day. And Sarah kicks Hagar out of the house. She's like, Isaac's the only heir. You can't be here. And Abraham's distressed. And he goes to God. And God says, hey, listen to Sarah in this. This is a good thing. So for several years, things kind of just go along. And then God tests Abraham, asking him to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham gets some wood and puts it on Isaac for the burnt offering. And Abraham carries a knife and some fire. When they find the place, Isaac questions Abraham. Hey, where's the lamb, dad? And Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb. So Abraham builds an altar, puts the wood on it, binds Isaac and puts him on top of the wood. Abraham trusts God explicitly. Either he's going to intervene or he's going to give him another son. But Isaac also had to trust God and his dad. Because I'm thinking a 14-year-old kid could probably get away from his dad if he really wanted to. When Abraham raises the knife, an angel stops him and says, don't harm the boy because I now know that you fear the Lord and have not withheld your only son from me. And there's a ram stuck in the thicket for the burnt offering. And again, Lord blesses Abraham, says your seed is going to possess the gate of their enemy. All nations will be blessed through your seed because you obeyed my voice. This is really the first time he's obeyed his voice. (laughs) Right? Uh, It didn't look like he was doing such a great job before, but maybe he was. I don't know. It doesn't look like it as it's written. At 127, Sarah dies. 
Abraham makes a servant swear to get a wife for Isaac from his brother Nahor. God directs the servant to Rebekah, which is Nahor's granddaughter. And then Abraham takes another wife and has six sons with her, then has sons with other concubines. He sends them all away from Isaac with gifts and, and stuff to get started. And when Abraham dies at 175, everything he has goes to Isaac. So what is Abraham's paradigm, this relationship paradigm? Because in the New Testament, we read over and over again about Abraham or the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We never read about the Noah covenant. We never read about the God of Moses. It's always the God of Abraham, the children of Abraham, daughters of Sarah. God has linked the followers of Jesus with the relational paradigm of Abraham. Now, religion will tell you, you must do this, you must not do that. Fear God, behave right, do Christian work. And some religions openly embrace selective portions of the Mosaic law. Is this what Abraham did? No. Abraham predated Moses by about 400 years, right? And he was hospitable. He trusted and believed God. But let's just admit his actions don't seem to characterize upright moral behavior right? God said, leave everything behind and go. Abraham takes Lot with him. God blesses him anyway. Abram has Sarai lie to protect his own life. God punishes the people he lies to and blesses Abraham. Lot separates from Abraham. God blesses Abraham even more. Lot lands in one of the worst cities on the planet and Abraham rescues him and God blesses Abraham through Melchizedek. It doesn't matter what kind of stuff Abraham falls into. God is blessing him, blessing him when he comes, blessing him when he goes, blessing him when he falls down, blessing him when he does good. That's the kind of blessing I want. So we've gone through this history to kind of expose these two paradigms, the attention paradigm of Cain, Ham, and Sodom, and the relational paradigm of Abel, Shem, and Abraham. Now, religion muddles these two paradigms because monitoring your spirit is difficult. Religion is considered a dutiful devotion to God and observance of religious principles. And these seem correlated, but I propose that they represent the two dichotomous paradigms, a relational devotion to God or a devotion to religion. Two paradigms, one to God through relationship, the other to religion through actions. If your religion is all about how you perform, what you do, what you don't do, where's your belief, your faith, your confidence? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because to please God, you must believe he exists and rewards those who seek him. Sounds like Abraham. Faith, from the Greek word pistis, means conviction of truth. That God exists as creator, ruler, and gives salvation through Christ. Faith in Christ is belief that Jesus is the Messiah through which we obtain eternal salvation. Faith is belief, belief in man's relationship to God, belief that you can have a personal relationship with God. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying religion is bad. I'm saying religion can impede or even replace your relationship with God, and that's bad. I'm not saying you can do anything you want. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, and still please God. What I'm saying is that many who struggle in their relationship with God struggle because they have blended the law of Moses with the covenant of Christ. And this is worse than oil and water. It's earning your salvation, not believing salvation. You cannot earn salvation. You can't earn a relationship with a father. It just is. So what is this attention paradigm? Let's just look at that for a minute. Paul told the Galatians, Do you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You believe because of the Spirit, but you act as if you are perfected by works of the law. Those who are of faith are children of Abraham and blessed with Abraham. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Hmm. It also says Christ became a curse for you. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now Christ bore that curse so you could receive the promise of Abraham through faith. No one is justified by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham had faith. He believed God, and it was accredited as righteousness. Christ became the curse, paid the price for your sin, for your attention paradigm. The law was given to expose sin, to show our need for a Savior. Why? Because we were born into the attention paradigm. See how good I am? See how bad they are? Watch, I pray for four hours a day. Well, I serve at the shelter. I landed a big account at work. I have a fancy home and take very long vacations. But forget the negative, right? Jealousy, fear, fear of missing out, sense of lack. Why did he get a promotion? What about me? If he's promoted, then I have to wait. Get out of my way. I'm in a hurry. Gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And the attention paradigm is a selfish paradigm. You are the center of your focus. But along with the self-focus and what about me-ism is a belief in lack. There's just not enough to go around and resources must be distributed fairly or, well, in my favor, because it's all about me. Now, the spirit of lack is a favorite of unbelievers to manipulate and control those around them. Don't believe it. And it certainly has no place in the life of a believer. But what about the relational paradigm? Living in a relational paradigm means you can celebrate with those who celebrate, you can mourn with those who mourn, without concern for yourself. When a coworker gets a hefty promotion, you can cheer, because his promotion doesn't cause lack for you. Your job is not your provider. Your position doesn't dictate your value. God is your provider, and you are in relationship with God, with the blessings of Abraham, right? And Abraham got blessed everywhere he went. Your relationship with God is spiritual. His spirit, Holy Spirit, engaging with your spirit. It can be expressed in the physical, 
but it's not dictated or directed by your physical actions. When you believe in Christ, you become a new creation. Your spirit is created new and in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit for the first time in your life. It's done and finished. It's new. Before you received Christ, you filled your spiritual void with things that made you feel good, mostly actions you did or relationships that you had with others. Now that you have a new spirit, you have to trust God and let go of the religion and traditions of do this, don't do that. Obviously, this is not new. Paul's warning to the Galatians to stop using the law as an indicator of the faith tells us that it it happened in 70 AD. It happened in 780. It happened in 1780. It happened in, it'll happen in 2780 if it's still here. You have faith that God is with you. He will never leave you. He is your provider and you will not lack. God has a plan for you, a purpose, and he wants you to prosper. Look at Abraham, you child of Abraham. Abraham did the best he could and he did things you wouldn't do. And God blessed him all the way, all the time. Every time we read about God talking to Abraham, he's being blessed. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Was he righteous? Not from a human perspective. Was Abraham practicing the law? The law came years later. Was his behavior perfect? No. So what did Abraham have? He had relationship, faith in God, conviction of the existence of God and God's promises. Abraham had a firm belief in the reliability the truth, and the strength of God. Now, maybe you're thinking you're stuck in an attention paradigm. Don't get upset. We all start there. This is the paradigm of sin. Look at me. I'm better than them. See what I've done. See what I can do, what I will do. Looking for the praise of men. Looking to be recognized for your actions. But you also get flooded with feelings of frustration and judgment and jealousy. This self-focused paradigm where you direct your life yourself. The consequence of seeking the attention and approval and admiration of others is a wandering spirit, always searching for something more, searching for what is missing. But the missing piece is the relational paradigm. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you are stuck in seeking the attention of others, whether it's in doing stuff at church, if it's trying to succeed at work or Even serving other people in a volunteer situation, you know, I don't know, helping with the baseball team. When something comes to mind, ask the Holy Spirit how God sees you with respect to this action, this thing that you're doing. How does God see you when you do this? Then ask what it looks like through a relational paradigm of love. What does it look like when you're in it, God? And he will encourage you to shift how you approach the situation. Now, it may be in being quiet or letting offenses go or forgiving or just trusting. He may have you walk away, stop doing it altogether so he can direct you to something else or to take time to just develop your relationship with him aside from all the doing. It's through a relational paradigm that you can fulfill the Great Commission to love God and love others. But you can't do it. You have to step out in faith, 
trusting God to develop your relationship with him, trusting God to help you shift that paradigm, right? You need his help. You can't get out of it on your own. How do you step out in faith? It almost always involves how you engage with other people. Now, looking at Abraham, he didn't trust untrustworthy people. He didn't trust Pharaoh. He didn't trust Abimelech. He knew they would kill him to get Sarah. So he did his little, tell them you're my sister and they won't kill me kind of thing. Right? Maybe that was the best plan for that situation. I don't know. But he trusted God to go with him even when his plans or ideas were imperfect or the situation was risky, right? You know, but Abraham didn't walk away from a fight either. He fought for what he needed to do. He fought to free Lot. And then he relented when he needed to. He sent Hagar away. Hagar and Ishmael, the only son he'd ever had, he sent away when Isaac was born. So life doesn't offer clear, concise choices. It's not always easy to figure out. But when you seek God and you do your best, God will direct your path. Loving God is relational. Loving others is relational. And love does cover a multitude of sins, most of them your own. Allow God through the Holy Spirit to shift your paradigm. You can't do it alone. Again, seek God. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you are stuck, where you are seeking the attention of others. And then ask God to show you what it looks like through a relationship paradigm. And allow God to shift your thinking. Allow God to shift your paradigm. Allow God to work through you for others. And that will develop your relationship. And God will bless you a little bit. Then he'll bless you a little bit more. And he'll bless you a little bit more. If the only blessing you get is a better relationship with God, praise God. Don't we all want to have the best relationship with God we can? I know I want mine better. But I know looking back, mine has changed me so much. You wouldn't even believe I was the same person. And he wants to do that with you too. So thanks for joining me. This has been a bit of a tricky episode and it's always going to be here. You can come back and listen to it again and let God start to break some of that stuff off of you. Some of those twisted thinking patterns and some bad behavior patterns and step out and trust him. You can learn more about it. You can read my notes and see some comments on my website, elainecross.com. And of course, you can donate on elainecross.com to keep this out there for other people to hear it. Thank you for joining me. And I pray that God will use this to help you draw closer to him in him closer to you. Have a blessed week. Till next time.